Here we go, session three, we're talking about alcohol. And in this session, we're going to look at what the New Testament has to say about the subject of alcohol. Okay, so alcohol in the New Testament. There's not as many passages and references uh, in the New Testament as there is in the Old Testament, but yet there's a lot of stories and a lot of things for us to glean from, uh, for us to understand kind of a New Testament perspective, specifically when it comes to Jesus. Okay, so first thing that we'll make note of, it, it seems it seems that Jesus himself uh, is the most lenient when it comes to drinking uh, in the entire New Testament. Okay, uh, there were numbers of casual references to wine and to vineyards that arose out of Jesus's regular teaching. So he had no problem with using the example of wine. He had no problem with using the example of vineyards. How, you know, where do babies come from? You know, where does wine come from? Comes from vineyards. Uh, he had no problem using that example in a lot of his teachings. Matthew chapter 20, uh, verses one to 16, chapter 21, verses eight to 22, uh, chapter 33, verse 46, Mark 12, one to 12, Luke 10, verse 34, Luke 13, six to nine, and Luke chapter 20. 20 verses uh, 9 to 18. So these are all examples of Jesus using wine, using vineyards and stuff within his teachings to help people understand and compare it to the kingdom of heaven. So he had no problem associating uh, ideas of the kingdom of God with that. In addition, Jesus refers to himself as the true vine and the father as the vine dresser, right? In John chapter 15, verses one to 11. Some of you might be thinking, well, so what? That doesn't make any sense. Well, it's just interesting if, if there is such a hard Christian line against drinking, why would Jesus even associate with things that are connected with drinking? Uh, some would say that, uh, well, it was just grape juice. You know, it wasn't wine. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but basically, in all honesty, if you're going to look at historical accuracy and linguistically uh, looking at what Jesus did, um, it, is, it is incredibly, incredibly difficult to make a case uh, that it was not actual wine, that it was just grape juice. Um, as I heard one person say, you got to do a lot of origami with the scripture text in order to make that come out of it. Uh, the plain sense of scripture communicates differently. Uh, when he was asked, uh, by the disciples of John the Baptist. Okay, so Jesus, he had his disciples. There was John the Baptist and John, he had his own uh, group of disciples that were along and John's disciples, they lived uh, in a very abstinent uh, you know, way. And so he was asked by John the Baptist's disciples why he and his disciples didn't fast right? Why they didn't practice, you know, abstaining from wine, abstaining from certain foods and drinks. Uh, although they themselves, John's disciples and the Pharisees did this. And Jesus answered them. He told them that it's appropriate to feast whenever the bridegroom is present, uh, which was a reference to himself. And so he said, yeah, these guys are eating. These guys are drinking. They're enjoying themselves. And yeah, let them do it when the bridegroom is present. And basically he was implying that one day I'm not going to be here and these guys are going to be by themselves. And trust me, they will do some fasting. Uh, trust me, they will be going through seasons where they abstain from some of this stuff. This is found in Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17, Mark chapter 2, verse 22, and Luke chapter 5, verses 37 to 39. Uh, other interesting thing to note, Jesus's personal appropriation of alcohol, how Jesus used and interacted with alcohol. Uh, I want you to do this. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, Luke chapter 7, verses 33 to 34, Jesus was accused, there was allegations that were brought against Jesus of being a drunkard and a glutton. 
All right. So they were accusing him of this. Uh, this was in major contrast to John the Baptist, who did not drink any wine or any strong drink, according to Luke chapter one, verse 15. Uh, that's why, you know, stated earlier, there was the questions about Jesus's disciples about fasting. And so uh, Jesus obviously was in a position to have this accusation brought against him. Um, now, clearly Jesus was not a drunkard, okay? Because he was sinless and, and he, he wouldn't go there. The text makes that clear. However, however, given that Jesus was considered to be a drunkard, um, what this would mean about Jesus's personal appropriation of alcohol was that he was around it. He was probably partaking in it. Uh, he was around other people that maybe went a little too far with it. We're told that Jesus regularly, or, or Jesus did in certain occasions, whether it was regularly or not, I don't know. Uh, again, don't want to go further than scripture, but Jesus did have occasions that brought accusations against him where he was around other people who were sinners, who were prostitutes, who were tax collectors, people who were quite possibly given to strong drink, uh, maybe Maybe they were taking it a little too far. So he was running around with some of the people or he was hanging out with some of the people that did practice these things and it caused people to bring the same accusations against him. At the very minimum, at the very minimum, uh, we cannot conclude that Jesus abstained from alcohol, okay? Uh, this is also just implicit in his words at the Last Supper. Uh, that he would not drink again uh, until the eschaton. Uh, so yet we're inclined to go further beyond the question of his own appropriation of alcohol into his assessment. And we see that his assessment of alcohol and how he interacted with it uh, was clearly positive. And so Jesus, he told his disciples that, you know, you know he, again, going back to the last supper thing, that yes, it, that night they were enjoying alcohol, uh, you know, or they had it with the supper and had it there. And he said, now I'm going to abstain from the cup until, you know, my work is done. So basically entering into this time where there would be a vow and he told him that he wouldn't drink again. Um, probably one of the most famous stories that surround it that gets used and people try to refute it and, you know, people try to talk about it, but it's, it's, plain scripture is Jesus's first miracle that's recorded in John in chapter two. Uh, many of you know, that's the wedding feast of Cana. And you understand this first miracle was turning water into wine and not just a little bit. It's not just like a cup trick and woo, you know, there it is. No, we're talking about uh, roughly 120 to 180 gallons worth of wine. And uh, it wasn't just uh, ordinary wine, it was good wine. Uh, so much so that all the people at the feast were just amazed and they said, wow, you guys saved the best for last. And uh, Jesus out of honor for his mother, uh, you know, quite possibly, we don't know for sure, but they were related to the groom. Uh, in some way, it was the groom's responsibility to make sure that the wine was uh, flowing for the totality of the celebration, which could go on for a couple of days. So this would have brought great embarrassment to the family. Anyway, Jesus, he steps in and at first he's like, no, man, my time hasn't yet come, but his mom keeps pushing him and won't take no for an answer. Isn't that just like a mama? And uh, basically says, hey, just do whatever he says. And he does this miracle. And so imagine, I mean, he's rolling into this party. He's there. He's just wanting to lay low under the radar. His time hasn't yet come. And yet he does this miracle. And the miracle is like, yeah, okay, here's 120 to 180 gallons worth of wine. Like it's just, it's, it's an astounding amount. And, uh, and he did it to keep the party going. And it, that is in, um, 
keeping with some of the things that we saw within the Old Testament, that it wasn't wrong uh, at these types of events of celebration, that when you partied, it's okay to party well and to enjoy yourself with food and enjoy yourself with drink and obviously know your limits and know not to take it too far. Uh, but there's a proper way to do it. And Jesus, he contributed to that kind of party and contributed to that kind of atmosphere. And so there's no condemnation on any of this. Uh, in fact, it was, it was encouraged and Jesus by all means participated. And just the context of society at the time, again, like the Old Testament, wine was just a regular part of society. It was a regular part of culture. This was a regular drink that people had on a consistent basis. And so Jesus, he, he had to interact with it and he had to engage within it, but obviously he did it in a way that was honoring to God and did it in a way that wasn't um, condescending. So that's like, just historically, when you look at it like that, it's, it's so easy to see from the specific examples in scripture, from the different texts, the different accusations that were brought against it, Jesus interacted with it, he affirmed it, uh, but obviously he would never cross that line. And, uh, you know, like I said before, it, you know, if you're getting into the actual words, uh, it was actual wine. It wasn't grape juice. Attempts to downplay the alcohol content of the wine in Jesus's day are just simply not an accurate portrayal of uh, one, the scriptures, and it's not an accurate portrayal of the reality of the day. Uh, in that same book, uh, the uh, alcohol in the history of the church, and this is found in, in a bunch of others. It it gets specifically into the Greek. If you're interested, you know you can look at this. Uh, the Greek word that was used of Jesus. Uh, you know, turning the water into wine. It's specifically referring to fermented wine. Uh, it's the same word that uh, is used in and around, don't be drunk with wine and doing that. So there's the potential obviously to get drunk all of it. And so when you know the customs of the day, you know, there's no reason to doubt. And even just looking into the original Greek, there's no reason to doubt that it was exactly what uh, we would just automatically assume it is that it's wine. Like it's, it's wine. If you take it too far, uh, you could get drunk off of it. That was the kind of substance. And that was the kind of wine that was around in Jesus's day. Uh, Margaret, uh, a, a feud, I think <laughs> I'm pronouncing her name, right. Uh, she wrote in her book, uh, we cannot in all honesty, twist it to mean as some would like that the wedding guests were just simply drinking plain grape juice. And then she quotes uh, T Furman Hewitt. He says in regard to this incident, that no negative connotation to wine drinking is implied in the story. And it may even reflect the Old Testament view that wine is a gift and the creation of God in seeing that. And so, again, this is, this is the conclusion uh, that, that uh, is kind of clearly accepted. You're going to see some people on the fringes uh, that are trying to build the case of abstinence for all or abstaining for all or prohibition and whatever that is. They will try to convince you or try to demonstrate that um, it wasn't actual wine, it was grape juice. And it, in my, everything that I've studied, everything that I looked at, uh, that's just simply not the case. Okay. So there's that. Okay. Let's move on. Alcohol in the rest of the New Testament. So we looked about, looked at Jesus's interaction with it. Let's look at the rest of the New Testament. Okay. In regards to the broader teaching of the New Testament, the rest is just a very similar, uh, assessment, uh, of it and specifically a similar negative assessment of drunkenness that the Old Testament portrays, okay? So you have clearly the use of alcohol in a healthy way, it being enjoyed. You see Jesus and his disciples enjoying it. You see the parties taking place, but then you also see very clearly 
unashamedly that there's uh, negative connotations and there's negative things that are connected to drunkenness, the abuse and misuse of alcohol. You see it in Matthew 24, verse 29. You see it in Luke chapter 12, verse 45, 1 Corinthians 5, 11, 1 Corinthians 15, 34, 1 Peter 4, verse 3, Revelation 14, verse 8, 17, verse 2, uh, and 6, and Revelation 18, and verse 3. So these are all negative assessments of drunkenness. Drunkenness, no. Do, you know, do not be given to too much drink. Uh, it's bad. It leads you astray. So stay away from that. Again, just reinforcing having healthy boundaries around this uh, thing that can be a gift. It can be a blessing, but the abuse and misuse of it can lead you astray. All right, John. John uses the Old Testament motif of the execution of God's wrath with the imagery taken from the winemaking process and describes the recipients of judgment as those who are drunk from this wine of judgment. Okay, so again, he uses similar examples that we see within the Old Testament. Revelation chapter four, verse 10. So this is found in the apocalyptic uh, you know, scriptures of Revelation. Revelation 14, verse 10, uh, and verses 18, verse 20 or through 20, Revelation 16, verse 19, and Revelation 19, verse 15. Uh, he goes on, due to the pending judgment of God, the New Testament uses the imagery of drunkenness as it relates to eschatological preparedness, okay? So being prepared, you know, for the latter times. You see this uh, expressed in Luke chapter 21, verse 34, Romans 13, verses 11 to 14, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 6 to 8, and 1 Peter uh, 1 and verse 13, chapter chapter 4, verse 7, and 1 Peter 5, and verse 8. We're told that believers are not to be drunk in this eschatological sense, all right? Uh, instead, we're to be alert and ready for the day of the Lord. So we're not to be overcome by drunkenness, but we're to be alert. So it uses this as imagery, an example that we should pay attention to, that we should be sober-minded, all right? Being sober-minded does not mean that we don't uh, enjoy it in its proper use. It just means that we are walking in Christian maturity, right? We're walking in wisdom. That's what scripture is conveying. Paul expressly, he expressly ties. And so this is what you actually see in a lot of Paul's writings. Uh, he's very concerned about some practical issues when it comes to drunkenness. And he takes aim at that. And then you see in our next session, when we're gonna look at church history, you actually see that some of the other church fathers and the people that came after Paul, uh, when they expressed their concerns about alcohol, it was for very similar reasons, which are actually still relevant for us today within drinking culture. And it's been written about by uh, popular authors such as Malcolm Gladwell, that the thing that Paul's honing in on and the thing that you're going to see people like Clement of Alexandra hone in on is very much like what people are honing in on today of saying the negativity of the uh, drinking scene, especially in colleges and, and, and amongst, you know, teenagers and 20 somethings and stuff that it's, it's leading to all kinds of things. Okay. So practically it seems that Paul's concern with wine is with the sexuality of public drinking uh, parties in the ancient world, that it leads to sexual promiscuity and it leads to opening yourself up in this way. And that element still exists today and it's relevant in our time and consideration. So those passages, they're relevant to us, right? And, and it's so important for us. Paul expressly ties other sins to drunkenness in different ways than the wisdom literature does. Once again, he takes a pot shot at the highly sexual nature of drinking parties and orgies that took place. Because we know this, we know this about Bacchus, uh, you know, in Ephesus. And there was, you know, temples and parties that were erected to them. And people would go, they would just get plastered. They'd go get drunk. Then they'd go up and, you know, okay, just, you know, kind of 
a little bit graphic here if you got kids around. Uh, and uh, there would literally be, as part of their worship, there would be prostitutes. There'd be hundreds and hundreds of prostitutes. And so people would go get, get drunk out of their minds and then they would go up and have sex. And this was like the act of worship in those days. And, you know, people were being sucked into this and drawn into this. And Paul was warning against it. In Ephesians chapter five, verse 18, he says, instead of that, like going through that, instead of being drunk with wine, believers should be filled with the spirit. Like don't participate in these rituals in the acts of worship that in our acts of worship to the Lord, we be filled with the spirit. And so he was doing that in direct contrast uh, to what was taking place in the culture at that time, which we might not do it the exact same way, but there's still the practice of getting plastered and leading to sexual promiscuity and all kinds of other things that is relevant for our time. He also commands leaders in the church to abstain from drunkenness, to be sober, which he applies to the elders and their wives, to deacons, as well as to older men and to older women. Uh, this is not to say he prohibits drinking. He prohibits the overindulgence of it. All right. Romans 12 verse three talks about this. First Timothy three verses two to three talks about this. And verse 8, 1 Timothy 11, uh, verse 2 talks about this. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, Titus chapter 1, verse 7, and Titus chapter 2, verses 2 to 3. Okay, so this is all talking about this, but it's interesting to note the prohibition of overindulgence here should be understood along the same lines as the prohibition of gluttony and of slothfulness and of greed. Again, when he talks about drunkenness, he doesn't just talk about it in isolation. He talks about it with these other things. And so again, we shouldn't give a, one interpretation to drunkenness and a different interpretation to things like gluttony and slothfulness and greed. Uh, it, again, they're to be understood together. So how we address gluttony is not with abstinence of food. How we address slothfulness is not the absence of rest. How we address greed is not the absence of money. It's the healthy expression of these things. And again, logically, we should apply the same thing when it comes to alcohol and when we see that he's speaking about drunkenness. Again, remember, it's important to remember that the abuse of something does not nullify the proper use of it, okay? And this is clear within scripture and clear with how church leaders and Christian leaders have walked this out. And people walk this out, really, even not just Christians, just people who understand healthy living, they walk it out in this way. Okay, uh, let's wrap this up. Paul goes further than any other writer in the Bible. Uh, and really, if you're looking for a slam verse, like if you're looking for something, it's like, poof, in your face, here it is, all right? And it's been used as such in doing it. I've sat through uh, many messages where it's been used as such, and it's good. We need to pay attention to this. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10, and in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 12, he flat out plainly states that drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, all right? Boom, there you go. Um, and so he, you know, he just flat out comes and, and, and says that. He says that the, the drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Again, drunkard referring to the overuse, the misuse, the inappropriate use of alcohol. Uh, again, it's interesting to note, and I keep bringing this out, and some of you, you know, just the full scope of scripture, okay? It's interesting to note that in these same passages, because he doesn't just single out drunkenness. He gives a list of a variety of different things. In these exact same passages, he also mentions sexual immorality and promiscuity. He also mentions greed alongside his mention of drunkenness. 
Why is this important? It's important because no one, I've never heard anybody, even those that uh, are the strongest against alcohol or trying to call it a sin, I have never heard anyone ever suggest that we should all stop having sex and that we should all stop making money in light of these passages. But rather, we should keep our sexuality and we should keep our money in its proper place. We need to put guards around some of these things. And in fact, some of the people that preach the hardest against drunkenness uh, could probably use a little bit more check around money and around greed and stuff like that. That's another hot topic for another day, all right? Um, so here, here's my point. The, the same thinking, the same sober-mindedness, to use that term, that we bring into our sexuality as Christians, as followers of Jesus, who are living our lives and presenting our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. We don't go too extreme when we see sexually immoral people do not inherit the kingdom of heaven. No more sex, huh? You know, and do that. No, we say, okay, we, we need to guard and practice this healthily, all right? And we need to do that. And we stumble from time to time and things happen, but, but we're striving again to, uh, to, to live a life of sanctification, uh, to use that term in this way. And so I just, with all, it's just obvious to me, the same should be applied to our drinking, all right? We should not discard, you know, the moment some people find out, Bible says you can drink, you know, they discard the other things that it says about it. And that's just foolishness, right? It just, it, it, literally, that's what Paul referred or that's what uh, the wisdom lit books refer to it as. And that's what Paul is trying to warn against. And so you see these, yes, there's these big heavy verses that speak against drunkenness. And again, they're to be listened to and heard and followed, but they're to be listened to within the full multi-perspective view of the teachings of scripture and the example that is set for us. So there you go. There is the New Testament overview of alcohol. That was a lot. So we, we kind of covered a ton in there. Um, in summary, in summary of what we just covered here in the uh, New Testament and even just kind of summarizing these last two sessions, the full biblical picture, the full biblical t picture, it teaches moderation in the pursuit of power. It teaches moderation in the pursuit of money and it teaches moderation in the pursuit of pleasure. All right, alcohol would fall into that category of pleasure. It teaches us to put God first and the principal result is second things that we pursue will fall into better lines. So put God first, honor God with these areas of our life and let's not put secondary things first, okay? And so keep our priorities in order, honor God in these areas of our life. And uh, that's what produces the best fruitful lives to him, okay? Listen, in summary, there is no scriptural basis for abstinence from any type of alcohol, even for leaders, all right? There is very clearly a mandate for certain seasons and assignments of separation. There is a clear warning against drunkenness that that is out of bounds. Don't go too far. Don't take it too far. Uh, there is a mandate for leaders, for me, to teach moderation as we teach the whole counsel of scripture and uh, for us to make sure we're keeping first things first and in all things. And so this is this is scripture. This is what it shares, okay? Uh, as one of my friends said it like this, he said, listen, there are many good reasons 
that someone should choose not to drink alcohol. And I believe that with all my heart. I believe that even in light of all this, even in seeing that, that some of us, we need to make choices of, of because of ourselves, maybe genetics, maybe um, because of family history, because of the emotional weight uh, in doing that. There are many good reasons to not drink alcohol. And so I believe that uh, people abstaining from it for those good reasons, we honor you. We never want to do anything to, um, to, to try to cause you to not follow that conviction and that reason uh, in doing it. Um, but in light of scripture, okay, so we're wrapping up this section on New Testament. Uh, there are many good reasons to not drink alcohol, but holiness is not one of them. Uh, this is not something God requires of us as a whole. It might be something he leads you and requires of you individually, but it is not something he is requiring of his church. And so this is what, uh, after looking at the full scope of scripture, are the clear, I, I, I believe the clear conclusions of what scriptural thinking is about that. And I hope, I hope we're willing to embrace all of it not just pick and choose, all right? This is why I wanted to go through these sessions to give it all to you. This is what all of scripture says about it. And it says a variety of different things. And let's not say, don't need this, don't need this, don't, no, no, let's, let's hold it all. Now, what you choose to do with it, well, we're gonna get into that in some later, in some of the final sessions. Uh, but whatever you choose to do with it, don't discard what this says. Don't discard what all of it says, okay? Um, Done. Let's wrap up this session and uh, we'll come back and we're going to do a session I love. I'm looking forward to. I kind of geek out over this stuff. Some of you might not be as interested in this, uh, but I want to do a brief sketch of alcohol uh, within the history of the church. So that's session four. Okay.